Hi, I'm Scott Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the GAF Podcast. This podcast is for professionals who want to work in the advisory space. It's a series of conversations and essential frameworks to give better advice. It's the stuff they don't teach you at uni. It's where value sits. So buckle in, volume up, let's go. Welcome to the GAF Podcast. My name's Scott Fitzpatrick. Very excited that I've dragged back John Kenfield uh, for a second session because there is just so much I need to steal and pinch off you and get out of your head onto my paper uh, regarding this whole family business advisory aspect. Welcome, John. Thank you, Scott. And I thought you told me last time you're going to stop stealing. <laughs> Too much good stuff. Now, John, just really quickly, uh, we, we worked out from the last podcast, you had a, a period of time in Deloitte intermediation and you found yourself in the last 20 or 30 years dealing with this successful family space and helping sort out families to lead a you know fully enriched life is that a 30 second version of it uh, pretty much i uh, i originally studied law uh, before i went into chartered accounting after a few years as a professional diver um, and i started deloitte's forensic accounting practice back in the 1980s and got a bit distressed by the way the processes of resolving disputes worked out. And so when I moved into arbitration and mediation, and then got into this family space where people started talking about what could happen, uh, I got pretty excited about uh, transporting all those other skills into this family business area, which has got a pretty unique collection of problems. (laughs) In particular, the diving, where you just need to hold your breath for a while. I, I, I tell you what, a North Sea oil rig feels a lot safer than some of the family <laughs> environments I've walked into. I can imagine. So I want to set the scene here a little bit. Um, John Jones, uh, a great mate of mine from Brighton Jones, summed this up nicely for me. He said, look, there's been four phases in this, you know, wealth, let's call it broadly wealth management. Um, it started off in the investment phase. Uh, it went from investment to a little bit of advice around the investment. Uh, in particular, it's now moving towards this concept of total balance sheet for clients. And then the fourth phase is this integration of the wealth. How does the wealth integrate now with the family for a successful life for the family? What are the challenges they face? Is that a broad summation you, you think of yeah, where we're moving? The, yeah, in the family business space, a lot of people use the Jay Hughes ideas of uh, social capital, intellectual capital, financial capital, etc. It's arrived at the same place. The idea is that ultimately, if you build wealth, you want to use it to support the family over the long term. And how do you make that work? And you're not going to do it just by getting an extra percentage point return on your money. Great. So if that's our thesis, uh, why would you do this? What's the market opportunity for this work? Well, um, the the figures that are always quoted is that in most Western uh, economies, family-owned and managed businesses represent about two-thirds of all registered businesses, and they generate roughly 50% of GDP and roughly employ roughly 50% of the workforce. And it is also said that they often provide the um, a lot of the engine room for innovation 
Uh, I'm not sure I totally buy all of those propositions. Yep. But the short answer is it's a hell of a big uh, market segment. It doesn't really see itself as a market segment, but it goes across all sorts of businesses. And I've worked with clients from $2 million turnover, $1 billion turnover. They're all family businesses. Their fundamental structural issues tend to be very similar. And almost all of them are relatively unsophisticated because there's something about most family businesses which, unless they consciously set about professionalizing, means that they can become a very substantial business and still have, shall we say, uh, informal systems in place, which the owners, because they've developed the systems, well understand and can operate. But as soon as they come to succession, which is a huge part of my practice these days, uh, that baby boomer retirement and passing on to generations, nobody else can replicate it. And the business and the family are in serious trouble. And they're the, they're the structural issues you're alluding to. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, interesting. So who's doing this work? Who's out there? Um, it's such a big marketplace. <laughs> and who's doing this work? I know for everyone listening to this, John's shaking his head. <laughs> Um, I have been trying to get my brothers um, in the chartered accounting profession and the CPAs and, uh, and mediators um, to get more into the family business space for years. And I've had a remarkable lack of success on the whole. And I think it's because when you talk about the challenges of advising a family business group, or let's call them a business family group, because once they've decided they're there for the long haul, it's really a business family that's standing behind the business rather than just a family that owns a business. So very, it's an important distinction. It is important. Um, when you talk about the issues, a lot of advisors run for cover because either they want to deal on the therapeutic human side or they want to deal on the square edge legal financial side. There aren't many people who want to do both. And I feel, although I'm a big fan of the concept of collaborative advisory where you bring in people to manage the bit you can't do yourself, you've really, if you want to paddle in this particular pond, you've really got to be prepared to develop and utilize a bit of emotional intelligence and have a good commercial sense. And my experience has been having, having uh, offered training to a lot of lawyers and accountants over the years and a, a smaller number of financial planners that if you've got the business skills down pat and you've got some emotional intelligence, you can fake it till you make it on the <laughs> For sure. Whereas the other guys, the, the psychs and the counsellors, they don't have a commercial bone in their body. They can't do both sides. So it, it's still a challenge. It's a work in progress. But having said that, in the States, I was at a conference in Miami just before COVID, and um, the Family Firm Institute over there has got thousands of advisors across the states who have taken on this. It's still a lot of wealth management, but they have bought this idea of a much broader approach. In, in the states, are you, is it a wealth advisors, accountants, lawyers? Is it a mix? Is it non-exec directors? Is it a same group? It, it's uh, there are a lot more private family office, multi-family office setups. And when you go behind them, they're usually uh, estate planners, trusted uh, trust lawyers, tax accountants, and so on. They're, they're the teams they put up. So uh, I, had a, I had a conversation with the CEO of Fox, the Family Office Network. Oh, yes. And um, they talked about having that. They service almost exclusively ultra high net worth individuals like 400 million plus US lying around waiting to be invested. 
And they talked about having something like 200 to 300 analysts and one person working part-time as a family therapist and counsellor for all of their clients around. I mean, it's just, they were talking about providing this holistic service. Yeah, but but you asked them, what was your staff breakdown? It didn't quite fit the message they were sending out. But they produce a lot of stuff, which is very focused on this much broader approach, which says, you know, if, if you want to have a good business family, then the family itself has got to be in good shape. And that doesn't happen by chance. You've got to put things in place to help them get there. Absolutely. So, John, that, that sort of leads me to, well, actually, I'll stay, on, I'll stay on point with that because when I see this, I think I, I, I like this term lead advisor in that you've got to be able to lead the client. You've got to be able to lead the other advisors around them. Um, you've got to be able to lead the family and then you've got to be able to lead yourself to be able to do this. It's like an eclectic skill set. It, it is, in a way, it's a bit unfashionable because the old command and control thing is uh, a bit a bit 1980s, really. Yep. Um, but the, yeah, the lead advisor basically is a project manager, I think. Somebody who doesn't have to do the work but has to make sure the work gets done. Yeah. And you, you need, uh, I believe, you need somebody who's a fairly good strategic thinker because you've got to be able to see the big picture through all this stuff. And then you've got to work out Number one, what does the client actually need? Where are they in their life cycle, which is fairly predictable? Um, what do they actually need as individuals and as a group? You work all that stuff through. You then work out, well, how do we address these needs? And then you work out, finally, who's going to address these needs? Um, and you put all that together. And then you remove a lot of the blockages to them getting on with doing a lot of other stuff that they would like to do in terms of investments, diversification, training next generation, doing other stuff, you know, um, uh, migrating a business from one generation to the next. But they can't do any of that unless they actually know who's committed and in, in what way they're committed. And that requires that the family be able to have some pretty constructive conversations. And that usually requires some ground rules, especially as a family starts to involve uh, next generations, possibly siblings, uh, possibly cousins, and so on. And that sort of leads us to the start point of the discussion with families about where you're trying to get to. Absolutely. Before you know, get the context right before we can deal with the content. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of families and have never had that conversation. I I hundred percent agree. And if you were to ask me, if you were to look at the root cause of most family conflicts and family dysfunction and family disintegration. One of the possibly trite answers would be there was no plan. So although I get some funny looks for saying it, I say to people, we need to do some family planning. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Gets our sure. attention. Yes. Gets our attention. Um, and essentially what we do is we, we would say the concept that I have of family business best practice advisory is you've got to start off by saying, let's have two separate streams here. One is for the family, one is for the business. And what we need to do is, number one, get rid of the blockers or the conflicts or whatever that's stopping you even getting in the room to have a conversation. And then pretty quickly, we want to move on to developing a family plan and a business plan. So everyone's got a sense of where where everything is going and what their place is in that. Because once they've got that, most people can put up with and work through almost anything. Yep. They have no sense of where they're going, no sense of meaning, purpose, direction, 
what the outcome is going to be, what's in it for them, and how do they how do they do their bit? That's when people get confused and they can become destructive um, if they don't see those that changing. And that's where I find a lot of families that come to me say, once you actually talk to them and explain and basically hold a mirror up and say, well, the reason why you're feeling so frustrated and burning off rubber is because there's simply no concerted idea of where this is going. Individuals may have some thought in their mind, may have a lot of thought, but nobody's sharing it. The reason why you got to this place is there just is no plan. And that's what we need to try and develop. And it's interesting, I'm spending some time in this area that you've got the I'm making this up as a go, but you might have the uh, patriarch going, well, I'm going, you know, I've always had in my mind I'm going this way, and then you've got matriarch and patriarch seeing husband and wife going, oh, hang on, I think we're going this way. And then you've got the family that have never had the discussion involving the broader children. And then you've got the business. So it's just, I see there's just this big bunch of, you know, concentric circles all overlapping. I uh... How do you make sense of that? Yeah, I think I told you the story once before of the of the very very Victorian esque uh, South Australian couple who'd been married for fifty three years, and uh, huge issues with uh, what was going to happen with the family farm. Um, there was a son who was sort of moving in, who had always been a bit problematic in the past. There was a daughter who was a bit of a self made um, you know individual, professionally qualified, didn't live on the farm anymore but resented the idea that the son would get uh, preferential treatment and probably bugger it all up anyway. Yep. Um, and it was creating huge conflict. And in that, in the meetings we had, the 88-year-old father at one stage said in a rather strangled voice, but surely you all knew what was in my heart and what I wanted to do. <laughs> I hadn't heard and, that. And his wife of 53 years turned to him with one of those piercing gazes that only 50... Only wise of 53 years could probably produce. And she said, we have been married for 53 years and I had no idea what was going on. Yep. And I've got, a, I've got a, another farming family at the moment um, where I was asked to be brought in just to facilitate, facilitate a friendly conversation between the parents and the four children about what they should do with the farm and the will and all the rest of it. And... It's, I'm, in, I'm in the process of writing the report now and the feedback that I'm giving them is look, what's come out of this is that there is so much stuff that you need to resolve as a family. And they are a very close, loving family. Yep. But there is so much stuff between the sons and the daughters and the treatment and the, the fact that dad was always incredibly distracted by his career and mum was always supporting dad and not of that. They just need to talk that stuff through, and they're all in their forties. They're all yeah, there's PhDs coming all over the place. They're highly educated, but they have got some serious stuff, and and it's pretty obvious. And this is what's going in the report. There's no point sorting out the will until we sort out the family, because no amount of money is going to make any of you happy about this. And happiness is not a big stretch. We just need to have a few conversations, deal with a few things, ventilate them. Right, so you're a facilitator, putting the elephant on the table. Helping them work through the issues. But John, how do you get these engagements? Where do they come from? And then how do you scope? Um, most of them come from, um, well, there's quite a few just come through the website now, people searching for me, yep. finding me on the website, which is a bit distressing because you'd like to think their advisors are smart enough to say, look, you need help from a specialist and I'll go and find one for you. 
But that doesn't happen, which usually means that once I get involved, the first thing they do is turn around and say, why didn't my lawyer or my financial planner or my accountant tell me about this stuff? It seems so obvious. Um, and then the next thing they do is rather than accept responsibility for not dealing with stuff themselves, they blame those advisors. It's easier to burn them yep. and just get some new advisors and then it, it gives them a clear conscience. So do you find you're in conflict sometimes with their advisors? You're seen as a threat to them? Yeah, there had been one or two, one or two in particular. Um, and it's usually because, well, there's been a few times that I've had to say, look, it's often, uh, most often when dad has passed and you've then got a son or a daughter steps in and the other uh, siblings uh, are concerned about what's going on and mum is sitting out the side basically not having much of a clue what's going on. And you find that the uh, financial advisors or the tax advisors have been doing things that they probably shouldn't have been doing with dad. And once you get into it and start looking at it and saying, look, we really need to clean this stuff up and work out yep. where we are, uh, you find that that creates major problems very quickly. And if they've been in there for 20, 30 years and dad's just passed, the family's scared of moving anything on. And the classic, uh, particularly if you're working in rural communities, is that you'll get the lawyers or the accountants who haven't been involved in that, um, who you say, look, here's what I'm finding and this is what needs to happen. What's your position about protecting your client here? And they, the, the response I've always had, which distresses me enormously, is they say, I've got to continue to live in this town and earn a living. I, I'm, I'm not prepared to do it, which is pretty shitty in my view. So that's oh, why. Yeah, you know, it's managing relationships is a big part of this. <laughs> and then, you know, managing other professional no, I, I, I think there you're at a, an in, almost impossible position it, it, because you, you've got stuff that needs to be done. Yeah. And people just aren't prepared to do it, which is not, which well, is exactly the course of the trusted advisor. Absolutely. You know? And this is where, you, you know, you've got to tell your client, we, we need to surround you with the best possible people to get us the highest probability of a result here. 100%. That's part of the role is to screen other professionals for suitability. So back to scoping then. How do you scope and what's the typical engagement? How long will it last for? It, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Usually what I will do is somebody will contact me and I say, let's get together for a cup of coffee and have a bit of a chat first of all. And over the last couple of years, a lot of that's been done via Zoom. Um, yep. but otherwise, I prefer to actually catch up with people and have a chat, not the whole group, just the one or two initiators initially. And just see if I uh, if they like the cut of my jib and vice versa and, and we feel we can move yep. on. If they do, then I, I will invariably say the first thing I want to do is a diagnostic to understand what's going on. I don't want to walk into this and I'm not going to make any recommendations for anything until I've got a much better understanding. And that's a process of one-on-one -on -one meetings with whoever is nominated as a significant person. And I'll spend usually a couple of hours with each of them and quite often I'll be 10 minutes in and somebody will stop and say, I can't believe we're going down this path. I sort of said to myself I was going to keep this tight. But the, life, the whole life story is just gushing out. It's extraordinary how quickly um, you're able to build confidence with that side of things. Um, so I'll do, the, I'll do the initial interviews, and depending on how many people there are, uh, we'll determine what the price is, obviously, because uh, three yep. or four a day is about all you can do. And then I'll produce a feedback report. And the feedback report is a helicopter view. It doesn't break confidences, but it's observations. 
and it says these appear to be the issues that I that I become aware of, and they're human or family or business or usually a combination. And and here are my recommendations for what needs to be done, and here's the next step. So I tend to work. I, I do a fixed fee for that exercise, which can be anything from a you know if it's just two people, anything from five grand to fifteen grand for the initial um, report. And that comes with a debrief if they want it, although most families just say, right, yeah, we get it. That's We knew this. And let's get on with it. Let's get on to step one. Um, and then it recommends the next stage. And I prefer to work in short stages because I, I say to people, you know, I don't want to lock you in and I don't want to lock myself in because I, we really don't know where this is going to go. Yep. We're just unpeeling the onion here. Yep. So we'll set up the next stage and it might be, we really need to do some work. We need to do some psychometric testing. We need to do some analysis of the family team, family dynamics. We need to mediate some uh, serious conflict between family members before we can go anywhere. Or if we don't have that, we move to a values and visioning workshop and we start setting some goals and that will be setting us up to do a proper family plan. So what I'll do is say it's going to take, depending on availability, two weeks, four weeks to do that. It's going to take roughly two to three days with the preparation, documentation, face-to-face -face workshops, and the cost is going to be X dollars. And I work on the basis that uh, I value bills, so I say that's what you're going to get. That's the outcome we're working towards. That's what it's going to cost you. And I'm assuming it's going to take me roughly you know, X period of time, but if I don't, that's my problem, not yours. Yep. So I try to work on the basis they know what they're paying for and they're happy with what they get. And we don't move too far with a commitment because I, I want them to be able to debrief at the end of each stage and help to help to feel as though they're designing the next stage in the process, which obviously I'll guide them through. It's, it's interesting that you like to sort of parachute in and out of engagements uh, where I'm a bit of a long-termer in terms of, well, I, I like that when I'm in the tent for a family, um, you know, I'm, I'm emotionally involved as well. Well, that's probably also why you have a bigger company than me. <laughs> no, no, it's just, it, but I think this is the, the beauty of this space is that you get to choose how you want to work and operate and add value oh, yeah. and, and where you want to play because there's there's not many people in this play pit. No, and, and one of the things I did discover, I haven't really done much about, is that parachutes actually only work in one direction. Yeah. So that's a bit of an issue. Yeah. Um, but what I often find is that I... I get brought in typically because the family's in conflict. There's, there's a problem, yep. And the problem is beyond what other advisors are willing to get involved in, yeah. because not mediation trained, they're advisor trained. Um, and then my my goal is invariably get in there, uh, sort things out, bring them back to a working proposition, and then hand them back to the advisors, and then I'm happy to support the advisors from the sidelines. Yep. What often happens, though, coming back to what we were saying before, is that the family says, well, you're actually not only fixing our problem, but you're helping to understand us to understand why the problem developed in the first place. So you can probably help us to do things to prevent the problem recurring. So we'd like you to now do X, Y, and Z. And it usually ends up, if I originally brought in to help with the business, I'll end up working back in the family. But if I'm normally, as normally, brought in to help with the family, they then say, we should be doing this in the yeah, business. Yeah, well, but it's a natural thing, John, isn't it, that once you've been brought into the tent and you've seen all the scars and war wounds and, you know, all the dynamics, then people don't want too many people in their tent. Well, uh, it's a natural right. thing that they want to keep hold of you. 
Yeah, and, and it's probably uh, sort of um, demonstrates what I was saying before that that the the families are often relatively unsophisticated, even if they're worth hundred million bucks. Yeah. They're often quite unsophisticated in the way they operate, and so they if they feel they can trust you and you appear to be competent in one space. They assume you can probably manage this other stuff. Now, my because I've got a background in as a chartered accountant, done a lot of business advisory, I can sort of do that because I've been mediating for 30 odd years. I feel like I can do that as well. But a hell of a lot of this is uh, experimenting on the client in the early years because yeah. there was nobody else to tell you how to do it. And somebody needed to do it. And I was the only person there. So you just did it. And it <laughs> generally worked. Good frontier, cut the edge. And what I'm seeing out there, Mark, is a couple of things. One is I call it the significant individuals where I keep using the tent analogy that they've got nobody they can talk to about health, wealth, life, business, succession. The list goes on and on and on. And it's, and it's not an accounting conversation or it's not a you know, tax or legal conversation. They're after a eclectic skill set to be able to you know, have those intimate conversations yeah i i think that's right and i think that the um i'm way beyond the gray hair thing now but um, i think that having a few extra years of age and being able to talk about what other families do and what you've seen in other families helps to normalize things yes um increasingly i find myself introducing one client i think this could be dangerous for me but increasingly, I find myself introducing one client to another client who seems to be a compatible personality in a similar place. Okay. Yep. Because often the leader of the business who's the leader of the family is in that very lonely space. Yes. And you can just say, look, I've just been working also with another family and, you know, Fred is in a very similar position to you. Do you mind if I send him your phone number? Or maybe you just have a chat. And, yep. and invariably, they, they hit it off like a house on fire yep. and they become a bit of a mutual support group. Yep. Uh, and that's that's pretty good too. Right. And then the other thing I'm spending some time is is setting up a family boards or, mm -hmm. or having a wider range of skill sets across a total balance sheet. Um, are you seeing that happening here in Australia? Are you seeing a movement toward that or away from that? Or um, I'm seeing it happen when I do it, and I'm seeing uh, various firms, advisory firms, talking about it. Yep. Um, you still find that there's not nearly as much of it as it could be, which I find strange because uh, one of the things I always look towards in a succession process is strengthening the governance bodies in the organisation because one of the key things about succession is you've got to get mum or dad or both out of operations where they're interfering day to day and everyone keeps going back to them. I represent, I represent that, yeah. You just yeah. got to get them out of that space and put them into a governance. You know, you, you, okay, maybe give them special projects as well. Yes. But put them in a governance role and get them involved in the strategic planning and get them involved in the employee reviews and get them looking at the financial reports and understanding what's happening and get them focusing on what's happening in the family as well as what's happening in the business. So you can help to create, if they haven't, if they're not able to do it themselves, you help to create a, a meaningful life that looks very different and allows everybody else the oxygen they otherwise suck out of the room to get on with being the next generation in the business. And is that the founder syndrome where they're just not ready to let go, don't want to let go, who am I if I let go, what will I do with myself? Yeah. So you're creating a new role, and this is where uh, one of the interesting observations is that a lot of family businesses 
the owners and the families say, oh, you know, we don't use titles. Whereas for everybody else on the planet, they're terribly important because the only way you know who the hell reports to who and you know, where the authority levels lie. And all of a sudden you find these people who've never thought they actually needed a title. They really want to be the chairman of the board. <laughs> uh, because once they move out of being the CEO, yes. if that's what they were calling themselves, uh, or, e, or MD, they need a title to prove to themselves in the world at large that they're still a relevant person with status yeah. and authority. Absolutely. And it, it, it's, uh, it, it's you have to suppress a smile sometimes when you're steering your way through that conversation. Uh, when you're thinking, but you okay, let's not go there. Let's not go there. Yeah, John, you've just completed, I think you have, or hopefully you have, your second book with I've, 50 uh, lessons. I've, I think it started off as 10 lessons. It's ended up at 50. Is that right? No, no. It was always going to be um, It was always going to be 50 common causes of conflict in a family business. Right. So I was sort of leveraging off the 50 Shades of Grey stuff with a, a, some, <laughs> okay. only slightly less salaciousness of yes. that. And the it sort of grew out of the first book as well, which is common causes of you know uh, conflict and such like. Um, but I must say that when I started uh, started doing it, I, it was with a view to doing the old Dickensian thing of doing a chapter at a time, publishing it as a blog and so on, and then throwing it all together as a book ultimately. So I've just finished. It's taken me about a year and a half to do it. Uh, I've finished writing the fiftieth chapter, and now I need, just need to do the linking chapters. And I need to get some uh, cartoons because it's fairly heavy stuff without some amusing cartoons. Yeah, we all like some pictures. Yeah. Now, uh, I, so I, I do follow you on this year. I do follow you on LinkedIn, so I've sort of followed each one of those that you've dropped on LinkedIn. But maybe just for the listeners, let's talk about a couple of those: the broken wing syndrome. Yes. Um, yeah. I, one of the beauties of, of, of creating the role of solutionist is you just keep on making stuff up. Um, <laughs> So the broken wing syndrome is something that I've seen in a lot of families and got it with a couple of families I'm working with right now, where there is a family member who uh, is actually or is perceived to not be capable of really looking after themselves. Might be perfectly intelligent, but they've got behavioural issues or they might not be that competent at all. And they may have medical issues, may have behavioural issues, emotional issues and so forth. But essentially, they would not be able to cope or they're perceived to not be able to cope. So they get brought into the family business. And within the family business, they are protected. And then they get advanced through the business into roles they're really not capable of performing, which then causes other siblings who are working hard in the business to resent the fact that the business is being held back by somebody getting the role of director of marketing and stuffing up every catalogue, for example, that, that yes. type of thing. They also resent the fact that because they're in that role, they haven't got a competent person in that role, so it's damaging the business and the, the future and reputation of the business. They also get very annoyed about the fact that it's usually mum is protecting that person and that then creates a rift in the family because dad wants to be business-like, mum wants to be nurturing. Mum and dad are actually trying to retire, but they feel that if they were not there, the siblings would no longer protect the broken wing sibling. I hear you. So people yeah. stay on. They they do what I call fossilize. They rust in place. You get 80-plus-year-olds 80 80 year staying in the business, not because they want to be in the business. They know they should have gone 10 years ago. But uh, dad is being told by mum, you dare to leave. And little Freddie is in trouble. Little Freddie is 46 yep. with three, three adult kids and so on. 
uh, you uh, so he can't retire, so he stays. The whole succession process is blocked up, mm. and then you see it cascading down, and, and you see that all of the good staff are leaving because Dad's way beyond where he should be. The business isn't innovating; it's not going through the refreshing process, and it's all to do with Mum, usually Mum. Um, sometimes it's Dad. It, it usually Mum with a son, the, with a daughter. Usually, the way it works, child with a broken wing, and it's all coming from that place yeah. where the family, the family is not worked out. This is a family problem; it's not a business problem. We should be fixing it in the family, not in the business. That's the right one. Matters. That's one of fifty you've got. One of fifty. Although That's... I use a couple of chapters for it because there's several. Aspects. <laughs> That's a it's a ripper. So, oh, a couple of things. Well, that sort of leads me to you know, like if, if you want to get more into this space, where do you where do you go? Apart from the fact I need to buy you two books, <laughs> um, the I, I'm running a program for the, the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners at the moment, and it basically condenses what was a 12-day program that I was running under a company I called the Family Business Institute, and that was designed specifically to provide the knowledge and the skills that advi- that advisors who've got all the skills and knowledge they need in accounting and legal, etc to move into this space so there's quite a lot of uh, conceptual framework stuff there's quite a lot of you know become familiar with the family business space understand what it's all about it's got advisory models and then it spends a fair bit of time teaching people skills of communication negotiation facilitation mediation because frankly that's a hell of a lot of what you're doing in this work and I, um, I've developed my own little again my own little theory that the cognitive learning model topped out too early at four stages. And what you need to do in this space is to go beyond being unconsciously competent. Yes. And you need to become an adept, what I call an adept, which means you are consciously choosing the tools you're going to use. You can't do it on autopilot. One of the big things I've seen as a a 40 uh, and chartered accountant for 40 odd years is that within about 10 years of entering almost any profession, most advisors really tend to work within the tram tracks of yes. their company and their professional dictates. And you need to be able to step outside them. So what this training is all about is saying you need to add some extra um, enabling skills to your uh, technical stuff. The family business stuff is not difficult to understand. It's all, it's why I, I my my master's in the bleeding obvious is such an important qualification <laughs> because it, this is yeah. not not complicated stuff, but you do need to use a different skill set to make it work. That's it. I think you, I keep talking to advisors, you've got to step from your comfort zone, your courage zone. Absolutely. And, yes, and you know, very, talking about that, this is the sort of stuff that, um, that uh, mature advisors, and particularly ones who are maybe looking to refire rather than retire, yeah. look move into another phase where they've done the technical stuff yep. and they're up to pussy's bow with all the legislative changes and everything else and keeping up with all that. This is where they can use all of those skills to move into a new phase where they remain relevant until they start until they start dribbling out of the corner of their mouth and this phone stops ringing. <laughs> so, yeah, you want to keep working until you're 70 or 80? Well, this is a way to do it because you're not going to do it as a technical account. Well, I, I know we're both passionate that we think this is a business of the future. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, for advisors uh, across the across the spectrum. Now, mate, well, I'm going to finish with... I haven't got any computers yet that can put an arm around you as far as I can see. That's it. 
But um, I, I talk to people about what's their their word for the year, or what's the word you'd put on a on a pebble that you'd sit on in front of your desk and go, "This is the lens that I want to look through for the through the year." That's mm-hmm. how I want to make decisions. And my just to give you a bit of background, mine three years ago uh, was curiosity, mm-hmm. uh, and then joy. And my word for this year is enrichment. What would yours be? Very good words. Um, I sort of fixated on solutions a long time ago, and I'm still pretty much there. Yep. Because I think it's, um, I mean, you, you look at things like the recent elections, and there wasn't a big idea anywhere for anything that I could see in that whole process. And it seems to me that we have very much fallen into the place of it's all short-term thinking. There's no long-term strategic thinking taking place. People are not solution-oriented. Consequently, you don't look at whatever you're walking into as a problem that needs to be solved by the provision of a solution. They treat it as an irritant that needs to be defused with no real attention to the underlying causes or the future impact. So I, I think that a good solution is a long-term proposition. So if and, you spent your day, uh, I, I'm pretty much stuck on that word. Great. If you, if you spent your day doing solutions, John, what would that give you? What would it give me? Yeah. Uh, hopefully some billable hours. <laughs> Good. Uh, but it gives me a lot of satisfaction because what yeah. I discovered in this space, and it's the reason why I left mainstream accounting profession, was that working in this space, a bit like some dispute resolution work, you get to a point where everyone in the room has an aha moment and you know that you've solved a problem that's been a whole family group for 30 years or more in a way that nobody else probably would have done or nobody else was going to do any better than you've done. That's gold, isn't it? From a professional perspective, yeah, it doesn't get better than that. Utopia. Yeah, Yeah, I absolutely get that. That is a great way for us to finish, mate, on that piece of gold right there. I want to thank you so much. I'm going to encourage everybody to look you up on LinkedIn, grab hold of those books, have a look at the step course. John Canfield, thanks so much, mate. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott, as always. Thanks for listening to the GAF podcast. We're all about empowering advisors. We think making great advisors is great for the community. Just to be clear, this is not personal advice. You need personal advice. Seek a qualified professional. Thanks for listening.